Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning as we consider the church both elastic and rigid, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. And as you find your place in your Bible or on your device, I'd encourage you to keep it open this morning as we'll be going back to it again and again. Hero stories tend to have a certain sense of inevitability about them, right? You you know how this script goes. It it starts off and they're developing the storyline of one character, and you realize, oh, this character is going to be the hero, and they're telling you his, his or her origin story and the things that he or she had to overcome, and then it cuts away over here to another storyline. There's another character, and of course, you begin, it begins to dawn on you, oh, this character must be the villain, and you know that at some point, there is going to be a clash. There is going to be a showdown. It seems inevitable, right? So Superman has his Lex Luthor. Luke Skywalker has his Darth Vader. Katniss Everdeen has her President Snow. Uh, T'Challa has Eric Killmonger, and you could go on and on. And as the movie builds, as there's one storyline and the other storyline, you know that a collision, a showdown, is coming. It seems inevitable. Well, Acts 15 seems inevitable. Acts 15 is the literary or theological or structural center of the book of Acts. It's the climax. It's the turning point. And Elle has left this for me uh, this morning. And uh, it's the center of the book of Acts. Why? Because Acts 15 addresses the Gentiles and the gospel. And you could have seen this coming back from the mission of the book of Acts that's given in Acts 1.8. Remember back in Acts 1.8, King Jesus, who has been resurrected, is speaking about His kingdom before His ascension. And what does He say? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that mission statement sets the frame for the entire book of Acts. So in Acts 1 through 7, it's witnesses in Jerusalem. And in Acts 8 through 12, it's witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And Acts 13 through 28, it's witnesses to the ends of the earth. And you see in Acts 1 through 12, it focuses on Peter and Jewish Christianity. And in Acts 13 through 28, it focuses on Paul and Gentile Christianity. And you see, King Jesus is telling his disciples that we need to make disciples of all nations because Gentiles are fellow heirs of the gospel. And you see kind of a down payment in this in Acts 10 and 11 when Peter interacts with a Gentile, Cornelius. And Cornelius is converted. But in the midst of Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, this really comes to a head. Because now you see Gentiles responding to the Gospel in large numbers. In fact, if you flip back just a couple of pages, you'll see at the end of Acts 13, Acts 13 
Acts 13, verses 48 and 49. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then it says this, And the Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And so Luke concludes at the end of chapter 14, at the end of this first missionary journey, verse 27, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are now coming to faith in large numbers. And inevitably, that raises two questions. First, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Or you could ask it this way, how are Gentiles saved? And secondly, how do Jews and Gentiles thrive together? How does a multi-ethnic church function? And Acts 15 lays out like this. In verses 1-5, through 5, there's a question that's raised. In verses 6-21, through 21, you'll see a council. The Jerusalem council is formed to address that question. And then in verses 22-35, through 35, you'll see a letter that is dispersed to the churches to give the answer from the council. And as we think about Acts 15 this morning, we're going to think about it under three headings. First, we're going to consider protecting the gospel of grace. Protecting the gospel of grace. Secondly, we'll consider preserving the bond of brotherhood. Preserving the bond of brotherhood. And thirdly, we'll think about empowering the multi-ethnic mission. Empowering the multi-ethnic mission. Or you could think about it with just these three words. Truth, unity, and love. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. We fulfill King Jesus' mission by being a steel beam on the truth of the Gospel and a bungee cord on our own personal preferences. Let me say that again. We fulfill King Jesus' mission by being a steel beam on the truth of the Gospel and a bungee cord on our own personal preferences. So let's look this morning at Acts chapter 15. We're just going to read verses 1-35. through 35. Pastor L last week referenced the end of the chapter. Let's focus our attention on God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers 
who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas and Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well." 
farewell. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And, so, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come into your house this morning and we consider the truth of your gospel and the love that you call us to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would lead us into the knowledge of Christ. And I pray that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, let's consider together then protecting the gospel of grace. Protecting the gospel of grace. As God is opening a door of faith to the Gentiles, there's this teaching that arises. And you see it there in verse 1. That some men are teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas begin to get into a debate of this teaching. And before we get into the substance of the debate, I want to pause and think with you about the process of the debate. You see, theological controversy in the church wasn't swept under the rug. It wasn't pushed aside, but it was brought to the church. And it was openly discussed. So let's look at the process here. In verse 2, there was a commission that was appointed. And that commission included Paul and Barnabas. And that commission was sent to Jerusalem to bring this question to the apostles and to the elders. And then in verse 6, there's a Jerusalem council that meets to consider the matter. In verse 7, there's much debate. And after that debate, we hear from three different speakers. In verses 7 through 11, Peter talks about his experience with Cornelius, who was a Gentile who was converted. And in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas reference God's work in their midst with the Gentiles. In verses 13 through 18, James, and James is probably the brother of Jesus, and he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. James takes those experiences from Peter and from Paul and Barnabas, and he squares them with the Scriptures. This is what the Scriptures teach about what they've experienced. And in verse 19, they arrive on a consensus. And that consensus is based on what the Scriptures teach. You see, the final authority isn't the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council is standing on the authority of the Scriptures. That's the process that they go through. Now that process is a historical narrative. And so it's descriptive. 
But it's more than just descriptive. You see, it's also normative. That is, it establishes a pattern for the church. The church is designed to be, at its essence, a connected church. It's designed to be a connected church where each individual church is connected to the larger church. One commentator, Guy Waters, explains it this way. He says, when the church struggles locally with an issue of doctrine or practice, she may invite the broader church to assist her by taking up the matter. When the elders of the broader church gather for this purpose, they should undertake their work in a deliberative assembly, seeking to bring biblical principles to bear on the situation before them. Their goal should be a church-wide consensus founded upon the Scripture's teaching. That consensus should be promulgated to the church at lower levels with the express goal of encouraging the whole church in the truth of God's Word by the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And did you know that at Redeemer, we are a small church that's connected to a larger church? We belong to a denomination. And that denomination is called the Presbyterian Church in America. And the PCA is governed by church courts ruled by elders at three different levels. You have the local level, which is the church session. And then you've got a regional level, which is the presbytery. And we belong to the presbytery of the Mississippi Valley. And then you have the national church court, and that's the general assembly. And the regional church court meets one time a quarter. The local church court meets every month. And the national church court meets, meets once a year. And we gather together to deliberate on issues of doctrine and practice. And what we're doing is we're just following the model set forth in Acts chapter 15. You see, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council is the means that God uses to protect the gospel of grace. That's the process that Acts 15 lays out. But then I really want to get into the substance of the debate. What's the question? What's the issue? Well, look back at verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then it's repeated in, and expanded upon in verse 5. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the whole law of Moses. Now, at first glance, this just appears to be Jewish teaching, right? It's necessary, they're saying, to be circumcised in order to be saved. But is that really what the Old Testament taught? In Romans chapter 4, Paul looks back at Abraham and says, Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15 before the sign of circumcision was given in Genesis 17. So Abraham was justified before, apart from, without circumcision. You see, circumcision was never designed to be a requirement for salvation. It was only ever supposed to be a sign 
of the covenant. And so to make circumcision a requirement for salvation is a perversion of the gospel of grace. And did you notice who is advocating for this teaching there in verse 5? Look at the text. It's some believers who what? Who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, the word party here is probably a little ironic. Pharisees were not exactly party people. They were probably more of party poopers, right? But converted Pharisees here are regressing back to their old ways. You know, saying you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Well, you can take the Pharisee out of legalism, but you can't take the legalism out of the Pharisee. These former Pharisees, like moths to a flame, have been sucked back into salvation by works. And that's what this is. It's subtle. They're not saying you don't need Jesus. Oh, you need Jesus. But you need Jesus and circumcision. And this is Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus anything becomes salvation by works. Jesus plus circumcision is salvation by works. And Peter in his speech says, no, 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 we're not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by works. Verse 9, he says we're saved by faith. Verse 11, he says we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will be saved. Now this question, this debate gets into the very essence of Christianity. Christianity teaches the gospel of grace. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says we are saved by what Jesus has done. We're not saved by by what we do. And there are really only two ways to think about salvation. It's binary. You're either saved by works or you're saved by grace. You're either saved by your righteousness or you're saved by His righteousness. So Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, says that if you accept circumcision as being necessary for salvation, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You'll be obligated to keep the whole law. If you add anything to faith in Jesus, then it becomes justification by works. And this is something that is deep in the human heart. It's something that the church has been fighting throughout her history. This is what the Reformation was all about, right? The Catholic Church was teaching justification by works. They were saying that justification comes from faith in Christ plus works. And the Reformers said, no, 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 no. Faith in Christ is resulting in justification and works. Works come after justification. They come out of justification. You see, the Reformation taught that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It's the gospel of grace. It's justification by grace, not justification by works. It's not Jesus plus. The Hindenburg was an airship in the 1930s. 
Now, airships uh, were invented in, 19, in 1852, about 50 years before the airplane was invented. And the Hindenburg was this monstrous ship that had this huge frame that was covered in this gelatinized cotton cloth, and it was designed to be filled with helium. But the Germans didn't have access to helium, and so they decided to fill it with hydrogen, right, to make the ship float, right, up in the air. Well, there's a difference between hydrogen and helium. Uh, helium is not combustible. It's not flammable. Hydrogen, on the other hand, is very combustible. And in order to get the Hindenburg to fly, they needed to put 7 million cubic feet of hydrogen into the Hindenburg. And in May of 1937, after the Hindenburg had crossed the Atlantic, it was trying to land near Boston. And there was a spark, maybe from static electricity, they're not sure. There was a spark that ignited all 7 million cubic feet of hydrogen, and it burned in 16 seconds and crashed to the ground. You see, when you add a spark to the hydrogen, the hydrogen ceases to be hydrogen. And when you add works to the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace ceases to be the gospel of grace. You see, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so we need to think about how we as the church should defend this gospel of grace. We need to be utterly inflexible, completely rigid, uncompromising when it comes to protecting this beautiful gospel of grace. But secondly then, we have preserving the bond of brotherhood. Preserving the bond of brotherhood. James, in verse 19, proclaims the consensus of the Jerusalem council that's based on the Scriptures. Look at verse 19 here. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Right? James is saying circumcision is not required for salvation. We're not going to put this yoke on them. The Jerusalem Council is saying salvation is not by works. They're protecting the gospel of grace. But then James adds this. Did this trouble you at all when we read it? It's a little confusing maybe. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. What's going on here? Well, Paul is moving from doctrine in verse 19 to practice in verse 20. You see, sorry, James. James recognizes that the influx of Gentiles into the church means that two cultures are going to collide. You see, there's not going to be two churches. Oh, over here we have the Gentile church, and over here we have the Jewish church. No, those two different cultures are going to come together in one church. They're going to be a part of the same church. 
And so James is looking to preserve the unity of that church, to preserve the bond of brotherhood. And so he's asking these new Gentile believers to leave their old practices behind so as to not to offend their new Jewish brothers. And those first two things, abstaining from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, probably had to do with pagan temple worship. You see, in their past life, Gentiles would have worshipped at pagan temples, and sexual immorality and idols were a regular part of pagan worship. And so James is asking the Gentiles for the sake of unity, so they don't offend their Jewish brothers and sisters, to leave those old practices behind. Not to mention that sexual immorality in any context is wrong. Well, that second pairing, abstaining from what has been strangled and abstaining from blood, probably has to do with, temp- with table fellowship. You see, the Jews followed very strict dietary laws that would have been found in Leviticus, and the Gentiles didn't. And so James, from a long list of the things that Jews were supposed to abstain from, probably selects the two most offensive and says, for the sake of unity, so as to not offend your Jewish brothers and sisters, leave those old practices behind. Leave those old practices behind so that your fellowship together can be unhindered. Leave those old practices behind so that you can build community. You see, James is asking the Gentiles to put aside old practices for the sake of unity. And here's the thing. James is actually practicing exactly what he's asking the Gentiles to do. You see, James is the leader of the circumcision party. He's the head of the Jerusalem church. And if it were up to James's personal preferences, he would have had all of the Gentiles become Jews. He would have had them get circumcised and obey the law, right? The whole nine yards. But for the sake of the gospel, James puts aside his personal preferences and offers gospel freedom. He lets go of his cultural practices so that Jews and Gentiles can build community together. And then James asks the Gentiles to do the same thing, to lay aside their cultural preferences so that they can be a part of one body, so that the church can be united in fellowship and in worship. You see, the basic principle is, here is this. Set aside your personal preferences for the sake of the gospel. Transcend your cultural practices for the sake of the unity of the church. It's saying that loving your brother is more important than claiming your rights. And Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. And Paul expounds that there's great freedom in Christ. But that that freedom always needs to be used in service of love of your brothers and sisters. And in Galatians 2, when Peter breaks fellowship with Gentiles over cultural preferences, Paul says that his conduct was not 
in step with the gospel. What are you willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? This summer in June, uh, I had the opportunity to go to General Assembly, that national church court where we make decisions on doctrine and practice, and that's a wonderful kind of family reunion. I worked at Reformed Theological Seminary for 24 years, and so I've gotten to know a lot of teaching elders over time. And so as you're catching up with various teaching elders, the question that was asked this year was, how is your church handling COVID? And I can't tell you how many horror stories I heard from these friends, these pastors, of members who got all up in arms. The church isn't doing it the way I want, and I'm leaving. I'm demanding my rights. I was so grateful for this body of believers here at Redeemer. You guys have given us input, but then you've laid your personal preferences aside again and again for the sake of the body. And I just want to say thank you. That's been a beautiful blessing to walk this journey with you in that. But here's the thing, as I thought about it, I went, you know, Redeemer had kind of an unfair advantage. As an intentionally multi-ethnic church, we've been practicing laying aside our personal preferences for the love of our brothers and sisters in Christ for years. And every time we do that, every time we lay aside our rights for the love of our brothers, we're imitating Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, even though he was in the very form of God. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and was obedient even to the point of death, to death on a cross. You see, Jesus gave up his rights out of love for you and out of love for me. And he calls the church to do the same thing. And so the church needs to be utterly rigid when it comes to protecting the gospel of grace, but lovingly elastic when it comes to preserving the bond of brotherhood. Martin Luther describes Paul as being strong in faith, invincible and immovable, but soft in love, more tender than a reed. John Newton says that Paul was a reed in non-essentials and an iron pillar in essentials. You know, I think the church needs to be kind of like a mama bear, have you ever watched a mama bear with her cubs? I prefer to do this from the safety of a TV screen or you know, binoculars when they're really far away. But you watch a mama bear with her cubs and she's incredibly tender and she'll groom them and she's providing for them. Maybe there's a little discipline here and there, but the theme of a mama bear with her cubs is tenderness. But boy, a predator shows up. You get between a mama bear and her cubs and look out, right? She becomes tenacious. She's going to attack. She's going to lay down her life to defend her cubs. And I think that's what, the, what Jesus is calling the church to be. He's calling us to be tender as we interact with brothers and sisters, but tenacious as we interact with predators. But sometimes the church gets that wrong, don't we? Sometimes the church is tenacious with our cubs and tender with our predators. And when that happens, the church 
goes badly. It goes badly for the church. We're, as we're tenacious when it comes to protecting the gospel of grace and tender when it comes to preserving the bond of brotherhood, that will empower our multi-ethnic mission. And that brings me to our third point, empowering the multi-ethnic mission. You see, once it was settled that circumcision was a cultural preference and not something that was required for salvation, Paul, in Acts 16.3, Paul has Timothy circumcised. But in Galatians 2.3, he has Titus not circumcised. What, why? What, why circumcise Timothy but not circumcise Titus? Well, it depended on Paul's particular cultural context. You see, Paul uses his cultural context to help fulfill his mission. Timothy was going to be ministering in Jewish context. And so Paul has Timothy circumcised, but Titus was going to be ministering in Gentile context. So he doesn't have Titus circumcised. And this was Paul's approach in all of life. Paul uses his freedom to be a witness. He uses his freedom to bring the good news. That's what we had in 1 Corinthians 9 this morning. Paul says, for though I am free, I'm completely free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means... I may save some. You see, in light of the mission of Acts to be King Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth in a way that forms one church in unity and love, Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council was inevitable, right? With the influx of the Gentiles in the first missionary journey, Acts 15 answers the two questions. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? No. There are no works necessary. All of us are saved the same way. We're all saved by the gospel of grace. And how does a multi-ethnic church function? Jews and Gentiles must both give up their cultural preferences out of love in order to form one body. Acts 15 is saying that the church needs to be both rigid and elastic to fulfill Jesus' mission. Rigid in protecting the gospel of grace, but elastic in preserving the bond of brotherhood. Bungee jumping is an extreme sport. 
Uh, A.J. Hackett is one of the pioneers of bungee jumping. And in the 1980s, he's from New Zealand. In the 1980s, A.J. Hackett began testing the technology of elasticity by jumping off of bridges in New Zealand. Now, this personally makes me a little nervous. Uh, a certain degree of craziness to jump off of a bridge to test your science. But he's doing this, and he's developing, and he says, oh, you know, I want to make this a commercial thing. But in order to make it a commercial thing, I need to have more people know about bungee jumping. And so in June of 1987, A.J. Hackett uh, goes to the Eiffel Tower, and, um, you know, he goes in with all of the tourists, and then at closing time, he hides and he, he spends the night, and the next morning at dawn, he jumps 906 feet on a bungee cord from the top of the Eiffel Tower. He came within 20 feet of the street. <laughs> I mean, you, you got to get that technology just right, right? He came within 20 feet of the street. He was immediately arrested. 20, minute, 20 minutes later, he was let go, and there were headlines around the world about bungee jumping, right? But in order for that bungee jump to go right, A.J. Hackett had to get the perfect combination of elasticity and rigidity, right? He, he needed to know the elasticity of the cord based on his weight and the height and the potential and the kinetic energy. And then he needed to attach that perfectly elastic cord, right, to a fixed object, an immovable object, a rigid object, an object that you would be willing to bet your life on, something immovable. It was a steel beam, right? And when he got that combination of elasticity and rigidity right, that jump was sheer exhilaration. But if he got it wrong, it would have been disastrous. And in the same way, when it comes to fulfilling Jesus' mission, we need to get just the right combination of elasticity and rigidity. We need to have a carefully calculated elasticity when it comes to preserving the bond of brotherhood. And we have to have a tenacious rigidity when it comes to protecting the gospel of grace. You see, we will fulfill Jesus' mission by being a steel beam on the truth of the gospel, but a bungee cord around our own personal preferences. You think about that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you help us to tenaciously defend the truth of the gospel and willingly and lovingly lay aside our personal preferences for the unity of the church. And as we do, may we experience and embrace more and more King Jesus who laid aside His rights out of love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.